Welcome to Cato Audio for December 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's new president, John Allison, discusses why capitalism is the cure to the ills of the financial crisis. Tim Carney talks about today's corporatist government. P.J. O'Rourke compares the U.S. to Greece. Tom Palmer talks about welfare states. And Charles Murray discusses the bachelor's degree bubble. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Two thousand twelve, as with two thousand ten, as with two thousand eight, was called the most important election of our time, and of course Barack Obama won the presidency again. We're going to talk a little bit about that and a little about some other trends that we've seen in this election two thousand twelve. I'm talking to John Samples, director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government, and Gene Healy, vice president of the Cato Institute, author of The Cult of the Presidency, and also author of the new ebook available at Cato.org and Amazon.com, False Idol. And I've forgotten the subtitle, Gene. Barack Obama and the Continuing Cult of the Presidency. Continuing Cult of the Presidency, more directly about the first term of Barack Obama. People think that you wrote that book, The Cult of the Presidency, with Barack Obama in mind. But of course, he uh, was not even considered too likely to become president as you were finishing that book. Yeah, I finished it in February 2008 at a time when I would have bet a substantial sum of money that Hillary Clinton would be our next president. But of course, Obama went on to ascend to office, and uh, in terms of presidential cults, he turned out to be the gift that keeps on giving. John Samples, there are many competing narratives. I noted recently that Sean Hannity, having witnessed Mitt Romney losing the election, had suddenly evolved on the subject of immigration. And of course, there were a lot of competing issues, competing ideas about why Mitt Romney lost. But it seems clear that uh, demographics played a big role and Republicans just being on the wrong side of a lot of issues. I think what I would say is uh, I would tell a kind of political science story. For a political scientist, these kinds of outcomes in a presidential election, always there's two big factors. One is how's the economy doing? And the second is, is there a war? The war had gotten off the headlines, so what's the economy doing? Well, the economy was not good, and so Barack Obama seemed beatable. But there's another important point here, which is Barack Obama was in office at a time when the economy was improving. So from November 2011 to November 2012, Barack Obama's approval rating, which is really a measure of how the economy is doing, rose by nine points from 43 percent, which he would have lost the election in November 2011, to 52 percent, where he was could win. And there's a lot of evidence that voters only look back about six months. So all the bad stuff that happened in the first three and a half years, for better or for worse, really didn't count in the outcome on the economic front. So that's part of it. The economy got good enough that he could win it. The second story here is I think that he put together a research and turnout team that was outstanding. Prior to a couple of days ago, I thought that that accounted for about 1% of the vote, and he won by 2.5%. But I had a conversation uh, with a senior member of the Obama team in which he told me about how astounded he was about how good the turnout effort was and how they could turn on a dime. He thought that they turned out about 55,000 people 
in Florida on the last weekend that they weren't counting on. They won by 70,000, just to give an example. I'm now thinking that almost all of the 2%, 2.5% was accounted for by just the sheer skill that these people had at doing this. And the third thing I would say here is, you know, Mitt Romney was not a candidate that excited many people. Everyone thought he was acceptable in some respects or the other or was better than Obama, but he was not a man that uh, you would go to the barricades for. He didn't lead you to think, oh, we're going to have a libertarian future or a conservative future. He was just sort of, well, this is what we got. So that didn't help matters any. Now, uh, libertarians like sharp contrasts. We, uh, I think, for the most part, would have liked to have seen a clear ideological divide between Barack Obama and whoever was challenging him for the White House. Mitt Romney talked a lot about that, but he talks a lot about a lot of things. And so whatever the rhetoric he was using, the divide in terms of a clear choice really wasn't there. So is there an upside here that is to say uh, Mitt Romney may or may not have been very good at the job as president, but at least libertarian rhetoric would have not taken another beating? That's correct. Now, it's easy to make too much out of this election. And I think a lot of people who were very disappointed are doing exactly that. This was an election in which the economy got a little better and probably not the president's credit. You know, he didn't do that. The president built a really good get out the vote uh, team. Okay. He he built that and it helped him. But if that's the reason he won, where in there is the idea that the world is ended, the United States is going to become a totally different country? Perhaps that'll happen, but it's not in the electoral data. This was a close status quo election in which the president pulled it out with lots of luck and a nice campaign team. Yeah, on the most important election in history claim, to be sure, there were some differences on these guys, you know, in terms of uh, fiscal policy and entitlements. But uh, let's remember that you have Mitt Romney, the man who essentially pioneered Obamacare in Massachusetts, and his running mate, who voted for No Child Left Behind, uh, the Iraq War, both the TARP and the auto bailout bill, one of very few House Republicans to have all those votes on his record. Oh, and I'm forgetting, of course, the uh, Medicare Part D, uh, one of the the largest expansions of uh, entitlement since uh, LBJ's Great Society. So the idea that these two men were all that stood between us and unmitigated socialism is a little tough to swallow. Moreover, on the uh, the issues that I spent a lot of my time on, issues of executive power, there really wasn't a dime's worth of difference between the two tickets. I wanted to get into that because Barack Obama doesn't like to talk about drone strikes. He doesn't like to talk about indefinite detention. He doesn't like to talk about, you know, secret wars being executed overseas. But to the extent that Mitt Romney has been questioned about these in public, he endorses these things wholeheartedly. Absolutely. There's a New York Times reporter, Charlie Savage, who follows executive power issues, has done a great job in the last two election cycles by getting all the major party candidates to answer questionnaires about executive power and to state for the record what the Constitution allows a president to do and not to do. 
And in those questionnaires, you know, you heard a lot about them uh, during the Libyan war because Obama on the campaign trail in 2008 had said the president doesn't have the power to go to war without Congress unless there's an imminent threat and violated that promise. And in 2000, the 2012 cycle, Mitt Romney basically endorsed all of these things, the uh, permanent drone warfare, targeted killing of American citizens, expanded surveillance powers. He was for all of it. So in essence, what you had when it came to presidential power was a pretty unappetizing choice, which would be, would you rather have a president who has violated all the promises he made about uh, constitutional fidelity on the campaign trail, Barack Obama? Or would you rather have his opponent who is telling everyone right up front he's going to commit the same abuses? And it's, like I said, not a very appetizing choice. John Samples. On this executive power issue, let's let's consider some of the recent results that go beyond Mitt Romney. I mean, essentially, the Bush era a strong executive uh, has now run in three elections, McCain in 2008, Bush in 2004, and of course Romney. Two out of the three of those elections were lost as part of a general uh, problem that Republicans have. They've lost five out of six of the last elections. The evidence is really not good that this strong executive idea and general theory is really something that works very well at the ballot box. It looks like something that... uh, they're losing out to people who, at least in theory, are offering something more uh, moderate. Barack Obama in 2012 changed, to use his term, evolved on at least two issues, that is uh, immigration and gay marriage. He publicly endorsed the first sitting president to publicly endorse same-sex marriage that he's saying it should be a legally recognized institution. And he also moved to effectively enforce parts of the DREAM Act without congressional approval, which won him some kudos from people who support immigration reform. So it seems to me like to the extent that he believed these things and wasn't saying them up front, this was purely political, but he was seemed to have been at least politically clearly on the right side of those issues. Well, on the DREAM Act thing, I think uh, it's actually fairly troubling to take a step back and fill in the background as the DREAM Act, which uh, would have uh, stopped the deportation and granted temporary work permits to young illegal immigrants whose parents brought them here as children. It's a bill that's been uh, before the Congress for some time now and has never managed to pass. Early on, Barack Obama was saying, well, I can't just implement this by executive order. That's not the way our process works. Well, as the election grew closer, he decided to, uh, well, just essentially make a royal dispensation and uh, implement major parts of this act just by executive fiat. Now, while I think uh, this is in many ways a sensible policy, I don't think you want to spend enforcement resources on people that are law-abiding, working age, and in the country already. I don't think you want to uh, spend a lot of time and effort uh, trying to deport them. The merits of the policy, I think, are are clear. However, the idea that uh, the president can essentially implement large parts of a measure that can't pass Congress, I think, is pretty troubling. And I think you're going to see a lot more of this in Obama's second term. I think the idea, one of the reasons I don't think... uh, 
people should have been too terrified by the reelection of Barack Obama is that most presidents do most of their legislative mischief in their first term, and you're not going to see anything on the scale of Obamacare pass the Congress. However, I think uh, the indications are pretty clear that Obama is going to strike out and use the powers of the presidency in ways similar to and uh, perhaps more aggressive than what he did with the DREAM Act Homeland Security Directive. I think that is going to be a real problem going forward. And I think it's going to make conservatives and uh, particularly Republicans in the House and Senate rediscover the wisdom of checks on executive power. John Samples, I talked to you about this a little bit as both a matter of policy, that is with immigration and gay marriage, but also with respect to presidential power. Are Republicans going to take the hint? It seems clear that as a political matter, it's best to fight against the – when the party you despise controls the levers of government, it's best to run against government. But what about these other issues as well? Well, let's talk about uh, Latino votes. Um, you have uh, – George W. Bush got 40, 44 percent of Spanish speakers in uh, 2000, 2004. Mitt Romney got 29 percent. In public opinion, any kind of big shift like that where you lose a quarter of the vote or more – in a couple of election cycles is a pretty big thing. I mean, that's a big move. Consider also the the idea that uh, every month, 200,000 Latinos turn 18, and fully 98% of those people will be eligible to vote because they're native-born. This is where the future is coming. You also have to consider that uh, in survey research, two-thirds of those questioned think that uh, the people who are now here deserve some kind of legal status. Two-thirds, I mean, this should be a no-brainer for politicians, whereas 25% think they should uh, be sent home. So this is um, not really something that is, uh, I mean, it would be one thing if they were taking these positions for, because majorities wanted it, but the majorities want the other thing. I mean, how much do you have to think this through on the Republican side? I think the party has... uh, also done itself a lot of damage by allowing its loudest voices to really be very negative about all people who are here, including uh, Spanish speakers who lived here for years. They see that the negative images and uh, the outright antagonism spills over to uh, people of illegal immigrants, to legal immigrants, and to voters. And so that's why you've seen a, a third of the vote disappear. Now, there is a libertarian answer to this, and the libertarian answer is not just immigration reform. I think it's also an attitude. I mean, for the libertarian, you know, trade is, is central. The person who crosses a border, like Gene, for example, crossed the borders of New Jersey and uh, Maryland to get here to D.C. to work for Cato, The stranger is really a person who comes here with something to offer. So the stranger is not an enemy or not someone that has potentially something to offer. And that's a libertarian outlook on other people that the Republican Party would be well-placed, I think, and and would be a good idea for them to project that in the future because they're going to be in deep trouble if they don't. Gene Healy. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about rethinking and soul-searching on the the right. Caleb, you mentioned Sean Hannity's uh, latter-day conversion to uh, more liberal immigration policy. But I think on a whole host of issues, there's going to be that this election shook a lot of people on the right 
up. Uh, many of them had convinced themselves that the polls were skewed and that, uh, you know, on the very eve of election, they fully expected Mitt Romney to win. And now I think there's a lot of hard rethinking on some policy positions. I think one of the positions that I predict is going to shift on the right is the support for uh, activist, powerful presidency. We tend to forget that at the birth of the modern conservative movement, modern conservatives were the original opponents of the imperial presidency. Conservatives in Congress had fought for the 22nd Amendment, limiting presidential terms uh, with the memory of FDR in mind. The people around uh, Buckley's National Review at the start, like uh, James Burnham and uh, Wilmer Kendall and Russell Kirk, were almost to a man opponents of activist strong presidencies. They thought that Congress was the more conservative institution. What happened in the 70s, you got uh, two factors I think were very important. What Kevin Phillips called the emerging Republican majority in the Electoral College, where conservatives could see that you would have for uh, a period of decades, uh, you could expect to have a center-right president who could use the powers of the office to deregulate and uh, use the bully pulpit to challenge the liberal media. And uh, the other factor, I think, was the influx of the uh, neoconservatives, ardent cold warriors who came over from the left that basically supported strong presidencies. Well, I think this election uh, shows how things are changing in that regard. There's a book from 2002 by a couple of pollsters on the left called The Emerging Democratic Majority. It looks like the Democrats, because of demographic changes, may have some lingering structural advantages in the Electoral College, and we may have center-left presidents for decades to come. But it also looks like, and Michael Barone pointed this out a week or so ago, that Republicans, conservatives, have a a structural advantage in the House. So things have flipped. And uh, at the same time, neoconservatives have been somewhat deservedly discredited for leading us into one of the biggest foreign policy disasters in American history, the Iraq War. So I think there is ample reason for conservatives, you know, both political reasons and uh, sound intellectual and ideological reasons for the right to rethink its love affair with the heroic presidency. And I think you're going to see a, a lot more congressional investigations and a lot more support on the right for relimiting presidential power. And there's a political context here, too. Again, I mentioned before that uh, the Republicans have basically lost what I would say is four and a half out of the last six elections. They've won a clear plurality in one election. You've really lost five out of six. There's something wrong here. And what is it? Well, you look at those people and think about the people that lost. Bob Dole, John McCain, and George uh, W. Bush didn't win a plurality either, and now Mitt Romney. The idea that these are radical conservatives or radicals, libertarians, just doesn't fly, right? I mean, these are guys who, if you had to have one term for them, uh, you would say they're some kind of big government conservatives or something like that. So then the question, if that is what has caused the problems here, that five of six losses, then the answer may be, well, maybe big government conservatism isn't a winner. And maybe there, we need a candidate who has actually shown and campaigned that uh, 
He might want to actually limit government, might be a constitutional conservative or a libertarian or whatever you want to call him. So I think a lot of people, not just libertarians, will probably be looking at Rand Paul in 2016 if he runs, and uh, they'll be considering that uh, candidacy very seriously. He will be different from the other people that seem apparently our candidates. I want to talk about one more thing before we uh, wrap up here, and that is what took place on state ballots in the United States in 2012. We had reform to marriage laws in four states. Marijuana was approved to be legal for adults to possess in small quantities in two states. It was on the ballot in three. And there are continued efforts, and this is a related issue, to for states to basically tell the federal government, no, we are not going to create exchanges under the Affordable Care Act. Does this signal something that I guess particularly the GOP ought to be paying attention to? Well, it signals that federalism has continuing relevance despite all the assaults on our federal structure over the last 70 80 years, federalism, you know, the states still have considerable power. You know, unfortunately, on both sides, you've seen way too much fair weather federalism. In the Bush years, the uh, medical marijuana prosecutions, uh, the Terry Schiavo effort, the effort to uh, persecute doctors that uh, participated in Oregon's Right to Die program. But I think the issue with the health insurance exchanges, the ballot initiatives legalizing possession of marijuana, and the trends with uh, marriage laws all show that the states retain considerable power to check federal initiatives. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens in Colorado and Washington state, despite a promise early on in the Obama administration to de-emphasize that they wouldn't prosecute medical marijuana cases in states that had legalized it, uh, medical marijuana prosecutions actually went up in the Obama administration. And this, I think, uh, the legalization of possession of small amounts of marijuana, this is really, uh, you know, at odds with federal law. And the feds are going to have a hard time enforcing it. They don't have the personnel. So it's going to be interesting to see how the administration responds to this and to other state initiatives. I agree completely with that. I mean, there's a, the whole issue of gay marriage, I think, is uh, now essentially over as a national issue. And the trends are remarkable and they're clear. The federalism issue, though, I think takes another element here. I mean, basically, the social conservatives, in my view, have had control of the Republican brand now for about 15 years. And again, I come back to the fact that their period of association with Republican candidates has not exactly been an overwhelming success in terms of winning the presidency or even keeping control of uh, Congress or one house of Congress. This reminds me so much, uh, these uh, referendum, of a comment by our late and greatly missed uh, chairman, Bill Niskanen, who said, you know, federalism can really work politically. The social conservatives need to be focusing on the state levels where these issues are really responsive to them. And for the police powers for the states where they traditionally have control over these kinds of issues. And that's where they need to have their focus politically because they can actually perhaps accomplish something or at least be heard and so on. And so, if for no other reason, it uh, creates less conflict among people who disagree with you in states far from where you live. Yeah, I'm reluctant to endorse the idea uh, that, uh, you know, that 
gay marriage should be uh, particularly a conflictual matter in the states. But I would say that it's a good idea that there is division on this issue. That's why you have a federalist structure. But it also means, in a sense, that the period of dominance by the national Republican message and so on is, again, coming to an end. It just hasn't worked. Needs to be another direction here. And I believe for all these, the Spanish-speaking vote, these new issues, and we haven't even talked about the youth vote where, uh, you know, the Republicans just got drubbed. And only Ron Paul has been the only person who has shown that they're capable of bringing out the young voters. All of that stuff points toward a different path for the GOP in 2016. Okay, we're going to leave it there. John Samples, director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government, and Gene Healy, vice president of the Cato Institute and author of the new ebook, False Idol, Barack Obama and the Continuing Cult of the Presidency. You can get those at Cato.org or Amazon.com. Many myths continue to surround the financial collapse that occurred in 2007 and 2008. Exploding those myths is vital to making appropriate reforms for the future. John Allison, the new president of the Cato Institute, is author of The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure, Why Pure Capitalism is the World Economy's Only Hope. He spoke at the Cato Institute in October. The... uh thought I'd like to start with is to reflect on why I really wrote this book. And I guess in one way, one of the primary reasons I thought it would be interesting to have a book by somebody that actually knew what happened. I thought that would be very interesting because <laughs> I hear all this stuff on TV, these people that are so certain that they don't have any idea what they're talking about. Secondly, I wanted to get rid of a myth. And the myth is that the financial crisis was caused by the deregulation of the financial services industry and by greed on Wall Street. Well, first place, financial services industry was not deregulated. We had a massive increase in regulations during the Bush administration. Three main major new laws, the Privacy Act, the Patriot Act, Sarbanes-Oxley. We were misregulated, not deregulated. And then secondly, while in my 40-year career, there has always been plenty of greed on Wall Street and plenty of fear. There's not one shred of evidence there was a suddenly a greed plague that swept across Wall Street. There was nothing new in terms of greed on Wall Street. In fact... Um, In my book, I have six basic themes. Uh, The first theme is that the primary cause of the financial crisis was government policy. We don't live in a free market in the United States. We live in a very mixed economy. The mixture varies by industry. Technology is the least regulated industry and has done very well. Financial services is the most regulated industry in the world. It's not surprising that our big problems have come out of the most regulated industry. Secondly, uh, government policy created a massive misinvestment, what's called a bubble. They got focused primarily in residential real estate. That bubble burst, destroying millions of jobs and trillions of dollars of wealth. Thirdly, a number of large financial institutions, so-called Wall Street, made a number of major mistakes. If I had been in charge, I'd have let those institutions fail. However, those mistakes were secondary, and they were all incented by government policy. Uh, Fourthly, And most unfortunately, almost everything we've done since the financial crisis started, even things that may have had a short-term benefit, will reduce and in many cases materially reduce our standard of living in the long term. Fifth and most important, the real cause of the financial crisis is not economic, it's philosophical. And the real cure is philosophical. And finally, if we don't change direction soon, we face some really severe economic consequences in the long term for our children and our grandchildren. Okay, what happened? We built 
and invested at least $3 trillion, too much in residential real estate. Uh, probably as much as $8 trillion, depends on how you measure it, but at least $3 trillion. Built too many houses, too big of houses, built houses in the wrong place. We should have been investing in technology, manufacturing capacity, agriculture, education. We should have saved more and spent less. We should have borrowed less from foreigners. Overinvestment in real estate is particularly destructive. Houses are consumption. Now, people think of a house as a personal investment, but from an economic perspective, we consume a house just like we consume an automobile. So we overconsumed. We ate our seed corn as a, uh, an agricultural example. If you look at that uh, misinvestment, what happened in that process is we taught millions of people how to do the wrong things. This bubble, it went exponential, but it started back in the early 1990s. So we taught millions of people how to build houses, to be residential lenders, to be real estate attorneys. And those millions of people are having to learn new jobs, which is one reason that unemployment has remained fairly stuck. The other thing we did is Manufacturing jobs and construction jobs are competitive. If you artificially drive up construction wages, you artificially drive up manufacturing wages, and in that process, we sent a lot of manufacturing jobs overseas that we cannot get back. How did we make a mistake of that magnitude? How did we make a three to eight trillion dollar error? It's interesting that markets are constantly making mistakes and are constantly learning. They're a constant correction process. However, markets never make mistakes of that magnitude. The two primary culprits that created this massive misinvestment were the Federal Reserve and government housing policy, specifically Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the giant government-sponsored enterprises that would never exist in, in a free market. In fact, the primary cause is the Federal Reserve. And in my 40-year career, every economic misinvestment, the roots have always been in errors made by the Federal Reserve. Now, this is an interesting thing. Any of you that have studied economics or studied finance know this, but you might not think about what the implications are. In 1913, when the Federal Reserve was created, the monetary system in the United States was nationalized. There is no private monetary system. The government owns the monetary system. If something goes wrong in the monetary system, by definition, it's a government policy problem. If interstate highway bridges were falling down, people would say, wow, uh, government owns the bridges, they're falling down. It's a government's problem. The government owns the monetary bridges in the United States. The Federal Reserve was created in theory to reduce volatility in the economy. In practice, what they do is reduce volatility in the short term and create bigger problems in the long term. Why is that? Free markets are constant experiments. We're constantly learning. For every Google, there's a thousand failed Googles. And part of the experimental process is letting companies fail. New companies are created, old companies are going out of business, and that releases their resources, their human and physical capital to produce other goods and services. When you stop that downside process, you just make problems bigger in the future. It'd be analogous to not disciplining a 13-year-old child, and then when they get 16, you're gonna be real unhappy with their behavior. Um, in addition, there were some very specific concrete problems that set up the mess that we're still struggling with today. In the early 2000s, Alan Greenspan, who had been the longtime head of the Federal Reserve, wanted to go out a hero. He was getting ready to retire, and he wanted to go out a hero. We were having a minor correction that we really needed to have, but he didn't want that to happen, so he printed a bunch of money, uh, creating what's called negative real interest rates. That meant that you could borrow at less than the inflation rate, and you could borrow at a lot less than the appreciation rate in real estate, which incented a massive level of borrowing. In a certain mathematical sense, the only way that there would be money to create a bubble is if the Fed provided it. Where did the money come from otherwise? 
the Fed created a huge monetary incentive for people to overconsume. Because when the Federal Reserve is printing money and we don't exactly realize what's going on, we tend to think we're wealthier than we are. And that's exactly what happened. People overconsumed. And the overconsumption got largely focused in the housing market because of government housing policy. Now, this actually goes back a long time. It goes back really to the 1930s, but it particularly got accelerated in the 1970s. And the theory in government housing policy is to raise home ownership above what's called the natural market rate because owning a home is a good thing. Well, it's very interesting. Owning a home is a good thing, but there's no evidence that owning a home per se changes the human behavior. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. The set of characteristics that enable you to own a home, self-discipline, being willing to, to self-control of what makes home ownership a good thing. And certainly incenting people to buy homes that they can't afford, uh, young people to buy homes before they've saved enough is not a good thing, and we've got the negative consequences of that. Is the United States doomed to get caught in, as humorist P.J. O'Rourke calls it, the grease trap? Or can the United States renew itself and escape the fate of so many heavily regulated, bureaucratized welfare states? O'Rourke detailed his humorous take at a New York Cato Institute City Seminar in October. Now, one method of being careful with government power is to think about the messy government the way we think about our messy personal lives, right? You know, there, there are furious ex-spouses and bitter former lovers and various outstanding child support judgments, and, and we don't want too much of that in one place, which is why we're moving to Phoenix, right? Um, America's founding fathers, they knew enough about messy personal lives, Jefferson in particular, to make sure that the Constitution contained Federalist decentralization of power and a system where each branch of the government would check and balance the other branches of the government. Because what if all the ex-spouses and the former lovers and the kids whose school fees were supposed to be paying, what if they all became friends and got the same lawyer? You know, America's founding fathers they would have rather moved to Phoenix than let something like that happen, you know? So it's important for as much of this government power as possible to be distributed to the smallest possible units of government, the states, the cities, the towns, the townships, and the counties. John Sununu, you know, uh, the big John, the, the former governor of New Hampshire, he, he, he had a good way to explain it. John's kind of a cranky guy, uh, but John's also a truthful guy. And what's more important, he's an engineer. He's an engineer. And Sununu compares reliance on local government to a goal of mechanical engineering known as known as short control loops. See, the, the hot and cold faucets in your shower, that, that's a short control loop. If instead of the hot and cold faucets, if instead of them being located in the shower stall, what, what if the hot and cold faucets were down in the basement? That would be a long control loop, right? It's not that a short control loop always works. You may be out of hot water, but it's better to stand there in the shower fiddling with a useless faucet than to march naked and dripping through the house, you know, amazing the children and shocking the cleaning lady, you know, down two flights of stairs into the grungy basement and fiddle with a useless faucet down there, you know. So if our neighbor on the local sewer commission, if he votes to raise our sewer rates, we can go next door and yell at him, you know, or, or, or stuff a potato up the tailpipe of his car, you know. Now, stuffing a potato up the tailpipe of the limousine of the President of the United States, that's a federal crime, or they'll make it one if I try. Now, despite the common sense of the short control loop argument, we're often deaf to it. And when something's wrong, we don't consult the sewer commissioner next door, even if what's wrong is backed up sewage, you know. 
Uh, we go straight to Washington and bypassing even the House and the Senate, we expect the president himself to take time off from trying to get his limo started and come over to our house with a plunger, you know? The expense of politics, the surrender of individual power to politics, the gross inefficiency of politics, it's all bad. It's all bad. But nothing is as bad as the brain of a politician. Now you go, what brain, you know? But <laughs> alas, it's worse than a joke. I mean, you know, taken one by one, politicians are of dull normal intelligence, you know? But when you put politicians together in government, you get committees. In Congress, they even come right out and call the committees. And we've all been on committees, right? We know what happens to intelligence and common sense when a person becomes a committee member. It's committee brain, right? Now, you live in a neighborhood with a playground. The kids in the neighborhood would like to play tetherball, but the playground has no tetherball pole. So a committee is formed to raise funds for tetherball. A committee to raise funds for tetherball, CRFT. CRFT started by a group of pleasant, enthusiastic, public-spirited neighbors. The minute any of these neighbors become a member of CRFT, he or she will begin to express his or her pleasant, enthusiastic public spirit by turning into one of the following characters. The stickler. We have to draw up a charter and form a nonprofit corporation with a chairman, a president, a vice president, secretary, treasury, development officer, and human resources executive. And, and the tetherball pole has to be exactly four meters high in accordance with North American Amateur Tetherball Association rules. Right? The dog in the manger. We need to get permission from the county zoning board, the city council, the parks department, and adjacent landowners who may complain about tetherball noise. That part of the playground is too damp for tetherball. It might be federally protected wetlands. Uh, we, we can't do any fundraising without advertising. We can't advertise without raising funds. The kids would rather have a tennis court anyway. The person who is stupid even by committee brain standards. So the rope has like a ball on the end? The warrior. Padded pole, breakaway tether, lightweight foam ball, ban on playing after dark or when visibility is poor, and when the sun is shining to avoid UV skin cancer damage. Kids should wear helmets and knee pads and safety belts. The person with ideas. Let's set up a challenge grant to erect a second tetherball pole in the inner city. Midnight tetherball could be an alternative to crime for deprived youth. Uh, we could also promote tetherball as a way to combat child obesity, which would make us eligible for funding from the Gates Foundation. We'll have a, a tetherball league. No, three adults, juniors, and tether tots. This could be a great Title IX thing. I mean, if our daughters are varsity-level tetherball players, they'll get into Yale. Yeah. You know, given the complete dominance of politics by committees and the committee brain, the wonder is that anything gets done, and the horror is that it does, you know? I, I, you know uh, what a government accomplishes is what you'd expect from a committee. A camel is a horse designed by a committee. That's a saying that couldn't be more wrong. A camel is a seeing-eye dog designed by a committee and available free with government grants to people who can see perfectly well but who can't walk. Mm -hmm. Let it be our mission to show people the danger and the folly of letting their lives be run by committee. And let it be our mission to show people the danger and the folly of all the temptations and all the empty promises of a government so big and powerful that it can give everyone everything for free. You know? 
You know, politicians, they just work themselves into a lather trying to prove the benefits of that gigantic government. Well, I'll tell you, using political logic, I can prove anything. I can prove anything. I can prove that shooting convenience store clerks stimulates the economy. I mean, jobs are created in the high-paying domestic manufacturing sector at gun and ammunition factories, you know. Additional medical technicians, security guards, health care providers, and morticians are hired. The unemployment rate is lowered as job seekers fill new openings on convenience store night shifts. And money stolen from convenience store cash registers stimulates the economy where stimulus is needed most in low-income neighborhoods where the people who shoot convenience store clerks go to buy their crack. I mean, considering all the good it does, I'm simply flabbergasted that everyone in Congress and the administration isn't smoking crack and shooting convenience store clerks this very minute. The truth about welfare states is that they're unsustainable. They take vital resources out of the private sector, and they ultimately rob us of control over our own lives. Cato Senior Fellow Tom Palmer laid out some of the lesser-known costs of welfare states at a Cato Institute student forum in October. Now, I've spoken on this theme a number of times in the United <coughs> Kingdom and Belgium and other countries. I just got back the other night from Russia. And people around the world understand what we mean by a welfare state. But most Americans do not. They associate welfare with the poor only. They don't think that they're receiving welfare. That's what poor people get. And yet the widest definition of means-tested programs in the federal budget indicates that between a quarter and a third, closer to a third, of the portion of the federal budget associated with transfer payments could be considered oriented towards the poor. The great bulk of it is not. In fact, all of us live in a welfare state. We are all forced upon penalty of jail into paying for Social Security, Medicare, and a host of other programs. We're taxed for or receive money via agricultural subsidies, support for student tuition, state universities, and much more. Our homes, home purchases are subsidized by a variety of tax breaks, and then the loans are securitized by government-sponsored agencies that direct loans to less qualified buyers. I'll talk about that in a moment. And then don't forget our massive corporate welfare programs that subsidize firms to market lemons abroad, to be able to market a wide variety of different products, all subsidized by the United States government, the subsidies of solar panel companies, for example, the Solyndra case, and of course producing ethanol in possibly the most astonishingly inefficient program for energy production imaginable in which not only is it economically inefficient, but some suggest it actually takes more than a gallon of fossil fuels to produce the equivalent in ethanol in terms of motive power. So welfare states are not just a system or a set of beneficent gestures, as they're often presented. They're <clears throat> systems that must generate coalitions of constituencies sufficient to maintain themselves. So everyone is roped in in one way or another. This is one reason why means testing of Social Security benefits has been resisted for so long because it would be evident some people are paying and not receiving. Instead, everyone qualifies for Social Security. Now, the welfare state originates as a system of control through dependency to generate loyalty to the state. If you want to think about this particular system, Otto von Bismarck should be considered its grandfather, the man who introduced blut and eisen, blood and iron, as a principle of European policy. 
He confirmed that the purpose of what he called state socialism was to generate dependency and thus loyalty, which was what a powerful Germany needed in order to dominate Europe. Whoever, and I quote, has a pension for his old age is far more content, far easier to handle than one who has no such prospect. Look at the difference between a private servant and a servant in the chancellery or at the court. The latter will put up with much more because he has a state pension to look forward to. A.J.P. Taylor, the great British historian in his biography of Bismarck, concluded, quote, social security has certainly made the masses less independent everywhere. Yet even the most fanatic apostle of independence would hesitate to dismantle the system which Bismarck invented and which all other democratic countries have copied. Well, he was right. The welfare state has made the masses, quote, less dependent everywhere. That is to say, more dependent everywhere. But I think we have now reached the point where we can, should, and must dare to dismantle, quote, the system which Bismarck invented. For the welfare states of the world are fatally overextended. Now, many argue that the welfare state is about helping the poor, but I suggest that they should ask whether the same politicians who support food stamp payments to make food more affordable for the poor are also the ones who support agricultural price supports to make that same food more expensive. Are they helping the poor when they make their food more expensive or when they subsidize its purchase? And when the surpluses that are generated by price floors are then sent abroad through U.S. foreign aid, we find the same members of Congress voting for that as well. So keeping prices high, subsidizing the poor to pay for the higher-priced food, and then sending the surpluses generated by price supports abroad are best understood as part of a political strategy to maintain the incomes and political support of farmers. If it were just about making food cheaper for the poor, there'd be no need for floor prices for agricultural products. I think this is better understood as a political system of graft, the use of taxpayer money to generate political support, not a system of benevolence toward farmers or the poor or foreigners. Now, we should recall that the welfare state may be justified in public discourse as a safety net. That's a typical thing when you talk about it, say, we need a safety net. But that's not what our welfare state is. It's not a safety net for those who have fallen through some misfortune. <clears throat> it's an all-encompassing net that traps all of us. Indeed, the cradle-to-grave system, I learned only recently, the man who used that in a public speech was Winston Churchill, not a leftist by usual definition who promised a cradle-to-grave system. A safety net may be justifiable, but the justifications offered for it should not be stretched beyond all plausibility to encompass the actual welfare state that we see today. Who really benefits from big government? Is it the public at large or big corporations like GE, which Tim Carney refers to as the for-profit wing of the federal government? Carney is a columnist at the Washington Examiner. He spoke at the Cato Institute in October on the real costs of global subsidies. One of the terms Scott spends some time on in the paper to show sort of the complexity, the arbitrariness sometimes of our responses to foreign trade practices, he talks about whom we consider a non-market economy. And my reporting on U.S. economic policies, non-market economy kind of rang a bell. And I wondered, to what extent are we a non-market economy? 
We certainly don't let markets set the price of the energy we buy or what sources of energy we get or the auto companies that get to exist or who gets to succeed in exporting or manufacturing. The government is very heavily involved in that, more so today, but also the case under President Bush as well and, and previous presidents. And I always use as a, the prime example of a, an American company that is uh, what might have been called by, there was a Professor Bert Folsom who wrote The Myth of the Robber Barons, and he distinguished between market entrepreneurs and political entrepreneurs. Boeing is one of our leading political entrepreneurs in America today. When Europe first came after Boeing for subsidizing, because you know Europe has their own subsidized jet maker, Airbus, and when Europe was coming after us last decade, they said, well, all of these defense contracts to Boeing count as subsidies. To some extent, that's Europe you know, not really believing in defense since uh, for the last few decades. But to another extent, there were, you know, the Air Force was lining up to lease these 767s as in-air fuel tankers, and that a woman went to jail over that because she left uh, Pentagon and went in uh, procurement and then went and got a job at Boeing after that. They get all sorts of, they're one of the leading military contractors. Boeing is by far the king of getting export subsidies through the Export-Import Bank. This is a government agency brags about how most of its subsidies for U.S. exports go to small businesses, but that's just counting each deal. If you count by dollar amount, depending on how you count, somewhere between two-thirds and 80% of Export-Import Bank funding subsidies subsidizes the sales of Boeing jets. And it goes beyond that. The states are handing money out to Boeing, where Washington Governor Gary Locke actually held something, a legislative session called the Boeing Session, a special session just to hand out hundreds of millions of dollars of subsidies to keep some Boeing manufacturing in Washington. When they were looking for their, where to move their corporate headquarters to, all these cities and states were bidding with this corporate welfare. Illinois gave them $63 million in handouts to move to Chicago. My favorite, though, was that Boeing wanted a block of office spaces in downtown Chicago, and they couldn't get enough floors together in the building they wanted. So mayor of Chicago wrote a $1 million check to the current tenant so that they would move out and Boeing got to move in. So this is the sort of situation that they work in. But I was talking to some Boeing guys at the Export-Import Bank annual conference earlier this year, and I used the word subsidy, and all of them got really upset. They said, we don't get any subsidies. And I said, okay, so the U.S. government loans money to your overseas buyers, and that's not a subsidy? And they said, no, well, because the Export-Import Bank it's been making a profit for recent years. And so taxpayers aren't actually paying for it. This is why one of the things I'm happy Scott really does in his papers, he lays out, first of all, I'll just say, that's not the normal understanding of a subsidy. Most people say if government policy is coming and helping one company, that's a subsidy. And it turns out that the closest thing we have to an official definition of this, the WTO definition, which some people say is itself too narrow, that is that says, a subsidy is anything that's a financial contribution conferred by government or some government-like public body that confers a benefit on a private party. So you talk to the head of Export-Import Bank, and he has barked at me. He says, Tim, you write that we subsidize these companies. We don't. No. We do subsidize them, and we do this in every industry. It's not just in exports. Um, General Electric in Obamanomics, I call them the for-profit arm of the Obama administration, because Obama would say, we need more passenger rail. 
GE goes and hires Linda Daschle, the wife of Obama confidant Tom Daschle, as their rail lobbyist and starts building up new trains. We need more embryonic stem cells. GE does a partnership with Geron, one of the biggest stem cell makers. We need more batteries for our rails, so they open a new battery factory subsidized in upstate New York. These companies are increasingly dancing to the tune that's called by government and then not having to worry about markets doing it. And the bigger guys often are doing it more then the smaller guys and the GE CEO, Jeff Immelt, makes it explicit. A year ago, he was on 60 Minutes, and he said, I want you to root for me. Everyone in Germany roots for Siemens. Everyone in Japan roots for Toshiba. Everybody in China roots for China South Rail. I want you to say, win GE. So this is the mindset, not just of the GE CEO, but I think it's not coincidental that he is a job czar for Barack Obama. I think when Barack Obama says the words, win the future, when Barack Obama sort of talks jingoistic and says, we can't let Spain beat us in, in windmills, or we can't let China beat us in solar panels, he's saying that. We ought to behave like Jeff Immelt wants us to. The year before, Immelt at Export-Import Bank annual conference said, Germany is the model. Germany, he said, had more, quote, public will and, quote, national vision. He said in Germany, quote, the companies roam as a pack. They stick together, and the government supports the companies to be exporters. And in the same speech, he enviously described China's, quote, incredible unanimity of purpose from top to bottom. This is what Obama's export czar wants. It's a slightly stronger version of, I think, what President Obama has been putting in place. And it appeals across partisan lines. The bachelor's degree is meant to indicate critical thinking skills, but it's not so much the case anymore. And the bachelor's degree bubble is overdue for a collapse. That from author Charles Murray, who made his case at the Cato Club 200 retreat in September. Initially, the BA was the marker whereby a farm family or a factory worker or a new immigrant could say that they had succeeded because their kids went to college. And there was a legitimate reason for seeing the BA, a college education, in that light. Because, in fact, it did open up all sorts of occupations that were not available to you if you did not have a BA. And a lot of those occupations did pay more money. They did not involve physical labor. And it was perfectly reasonable to look upon sending your kids to college as making it in America. And furthermore, if we're talking 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, if you were an employer and somebody walked into the office and said, uh, as an applicant, I've got a BA, you could make some reasonable assumptions about what that meant, that they had gotten four years that in some sense resembled a classical liberal education, where you're forced to come to grips with some of the greatest works of the human mind, and where you're forced to think rigorously, you're forced to do a lot of writing, and you're, the writing is going to uh, be severely criticized unless the writing's pretty good. So as an employer, even if it wasn't a BA in biochemistry or something which signified specific skills, a BA in history well, could reasonably lead you to think that you were hiring somebody who, who brought to that job qualities of mind that you wanted. But at that time, let's say 1960, for example, we're still talking about only 10% of the population of adults who had BAs. That number continued to grow. Until now, about a third of all adults have a BA. 
And in the process of that increase, a variety of pernicious things have happened because of the absolutely understandable desire of parents to have a better life for their children than they had for themselves. The first of these pernicious influences was that the parents weren't really eager for their kids to get the education, they were eager for them to get the piece of paper. Because it was the piece of paper that increasingly was required to get the job interview. My father had a high school education and he ended his life as a uh, upper level executive in the Maytag company. He would often point out to me that he couldn't have done that 20 years later. He got his job in about 1930. And by even 1950, Maytag wasn't even interviewing anybody for managerial positions anymore unless they had a BA. And that was happening throughout the economy. And as that happened, as the BA began to take on a gateway function for you don't get through the door unless you have a BA, what people wanted was a piece of paper. What you had there was the customer asking for something that the school could provide independently of the quality of education that it was providing. And guess what happened as a result of that? You had schools which had every incentive to produce as many graduates among those who came into their classes as possible, and they have no incentive whatsoever to improve the product. And on the contrary, during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, we had the well-known uh, transformation of faculties, especially in the social sciences and the humanities, into our tenured radicals. and so. Any remnant of a liberal education pretty much disappeared. I can name you on the fingers of one hand the colleges where if you have a BA in the social sciences, you have gotten the core of a liberal education. University of Chicago, St. John's in Annapolis and Santa Fe, maybe one or two others, and that's it. In any other college, you cannot tell. If you're talking about a major in the social sciences or in the humanities, you cannot tell what that person knows if the only piece of information you have about that person is they have a BA. And all of you in this room who hire people know what I'm talking about. If it's a BA from Stanford, you do know something. What do you know? You know the kid was smart enough to get into Stanford at age 18. But that's a pretty reasonable bit of information to have for a degree from Stanford. You have to be really good, uh, have a really good record at age 18, have to be really smart to get into the school, and the value added during the course of being at Stanford is not of particular interest to you. The same is true of the other elite schools. What do you know as an employer if a kid walks in and he's gotten a BA from Southeast Podunk University? You don't even know if that person can write a coherent sentence. Literally, you do not know that for sure. You certainly know nothing about whether they've been taught to think. You know nothing about any other kinds of the skills that they bring to the job that you could assume were there some years before. So what we have now is a meaningless piece of paper, if you're talking about anything except a degree in the sciences or engineering or math, a meaningless piece of paper which is serving a gateway function which the majority of American young people cannot reasonably aspire to attain in the context of a president and a culture which says that everybody should go to college. Well, if you're an upper middle class parent who can afford to pay for college for your kid, and he goes and he spends four years there and uh, has a good time, maybe you can say to yourself, well, he didn't uh, get learned what I wish he'd learned, but, uh, you know, college is a nice rite of passage and the rest of it. Okay, you know, 
Being on a college campus is not an evil place to be necessarily, but there are a few other aspects of this situation where the so what question is very important. The first is stigma. When you had a situation where 10% of the population had college degrees and 90% did not, there was prestige in having a college degree, but there was not stigma for failing to have a college degree. There were all sorts of reasons why people didn't have college degrees. It was widely understood among everyone that some of the most able people in the country did not have college degrees. So that wasn't a problem. When you get up to 30% that have college degrees, and you have the rhetoric of everybody should go to college, along with the assumption that everybody can go to college if only they would try hard enough and get the appropriate level of support, you got more and more problems because it increasingly becomes the case that if you have not gotten, gone to college, it must be because you couldn't, you weren't smart enough or you weren't energetic enough for the rest of it. And stigma starts to apply to it. To be just a high school graduate these days carries with it the badge of second-class citizenship, which is utterly unwarranted, but it is there. That's one bad thing. A second bad thing is that an awful lot of kids who start out in college don't finish. So they go and they get college loans they don't complete the degree for whatever reasons, and so there they are, 19, 20, 21 years old, just getting started in life, and they got six-figure debt on their hands because of a policy which says, to be successful in this country, you've got to have that piece of paper called a BA that no longer means anything. And finally, there is the issue that are, is called misaligned ambitions by the social scientists. There's a large literature on this. Misaligned ambitions refers to the very large number of high school kids who have ambitions to be an attorney, to be an orthopedic surgeon, uh, to be a CEO, which are completely out of whack with their academic performance or anything that would predict this is remotely possible for them. This is worse than just misaligned ambitions because kids have perversely decided to want to be these things without any basis for it. We as a society are insistently encouraging them to develop these misaligned ambitions because we refuse to say to them, okay, if you want to be a successful attorney, here's what you got to be. You got to be roughly in the top 10% uh, probably minimum, top 10, 15% in terms of IQ. And you've got to have especially elevated skills in verbal skills. And here's the kind of reading you've got to do. Here's the kind of logic you've got to be able to use, et cetera, et cetera. And if you have all those things, and if you work your behind off for three years, then you can get a law degree and you can be a lawyer. We don't say that. Here's another thing we don't do. We don't give any credit to all the really interesting, satisfying, rewarding ways of making a living that have nothing to do with getting a college degree. We make it sound as if you have a choice if you were a high school student. Either you can get a college degree and be an attorney or a physician or something, or you can work at Walmart. Those, those are your only choices. There is no mention of the fact that, you know what, to be a master welder, first, gives you a real sense of accomplishment because it's not easy. Secondly, your work is doing things where you are solving problems, where you are creating things, where you are fixing things, where you are doing something meaningful every day. 
and you're getting pretty good money, you don't say that. Neither do you say, do you know what? An awful lot of these middle management jobs that you get if you have a BA are really boring. You don't point out, being a master welder, you know, you can't outsource that job to India. Being a middle manager, you can outsource to India. Why don't we say these things? Because you are selling the kids short if you tell them that they shouldn't go to college. And so you have high school counselors who literally tell 90% of their students that they ought to try for college, for a four-year college. Counselors will report this, that if they don't do that, they will get criticism both from the principal and from parents for selling their kids short. It is a classic case of emperor's clothes, and the people who are suffering from it do not constitute a minority of our young people in this country. They constitute a majority of them. The theoretical solution for all this is a fundamental shift in the way we define success in education. Right now, success in education is to uh, get a college degree. Suppose we shifted that to say, education has been successful when it brings a child to adulthood, having helped that child discover things that he or she likes to do and taught them how to do them well. And if that means that the person ends up being a biophysicist, great. If the person ends up being a master welder, great. That's the first theoretical change that we make. The second theoretical change that we make in the way we approach education is to stop distinguishing between excellence in different kinds of fields. Everybody in this room has been pretty doggone successful in your careers. And I think you can probably all identify with what I see in my own career. In my own career, there was a period when I was an apprentice. I had talent, I had gone to school, but there were several years where I was learning my craft. I was an apprentice, I was getting better at what I did. And there was then a period when I reached a journeyman stage. I was quite competent at what I did, and I did it well. And I will fatuously say that at some light later point, I became a master craftsman in my field. And all of these things I took great pride in, and in my interior self saw my progression in that way. I bet a lot of you have seen your own careers in exactly that same way. And it's true for me as a writer and a social scientist. It's true for surgeons. It's true for attorneys. It's true for senior executives. It's true for master welders. True for master plumbers. It's true for anybody who has gotten really good at his job. What if we conceived of careers not as those which are professional careers versus blue-collar careers and so forth, but saw all of us being engaged in that same progression from apprentice to journeyman to master craftsman, and we are all colleagues in that sense. But theoretical changes are one thing, practical ones are the other, and here's where I get to the good news which is a lot of this is going to change on its own, or even better, not on its own, but because of market forces. What we have here is a classic bubble, like the housing bubble. That image is not original with me. I first heard it from Peter Thiel, the uh, IT entrepreneur and, uh, who uh, started PayPal and has recently been in Facebook and so forth. Peter Thiel has been very good on this. And he, he refers to higher education as a bubble because it has all the characteristics. Basically, you have a product which has gotten grotesquely overpriced and uh, overvalued. 
and we're beginning to see people apprehending that. The process has been accelerated by the recent recession. I think it was going to happen anyway. But it's, it is really obvious now that a whole bunch of these college degrees don't convey any signaling power to an employer. When you walk in with your sociology degree from Podunk State, that college degree doesn't buy you a thing. It's got to be from Stanford or someplace like that in order for you to get a, a whole lot of goodies from the job application process. At the same time, it's also become increasingly obvious that the college degree requirement for getting a job interview is being applied to bizarre portions of jobs. I was told, and I think it's correct, that the Enterprise Auto Rental Company requires a BA for people who are going to apply for jobs as checking in cars. Now, maybe that's because they're going to be on a management track and that's their entry-level job, but I don't think so. I think it's just a case of the BA being applied in a grotesque way as a screening device that bears no relationship. And people are starting to understand that. The costs of these loans that have to be paid back in return for a college education that's meaningless uh, is becoming increasingly obvious. I'll tell you something else that I think is becoming increasingly obvious. I don't think a lot of parents like to admit this, but I bet some of you in the audience will resonate with what I'm about to say. College used to be a transition from adolescence to adulthood. It used to be that you've dealt with a professor in college in a different way than you dealt with a high school teacher. There was a whole lot less hand-holding. And if the paper was late, it was late and was not accepted, even if it was 10 minutes late. And uh, the professor was intermediate between the buddy who was a high school teacher and the boss in the job. And it was more like a boss than like the high school teacher. There were all sorts of ways in which you had to cope with life on your own, which was a good transition to adulthood. College today increasingly is not a transition to adulthood. It is a prolongation of adolescence. The ways that we have developed these support staffs, res the, the technical term is res staff, I think resident staff, where basically you have people acting as surrogate parents in the college to deal with every little thing that comes up. Plus you have the phenomenon called helicopter parents, which I think you've heard about. They're called helicopter parents because they hover, who are constantly on the phone with their kids and ready to smooth any little barrier that may come up. College simply is not, is not performing that kind of function anymore. College is no longer sensible in other ways. For years, it's increasingly obvious to everybody, four years is kind of silly. What kinds of occupations require four years of classwork? I mean, lots of occupations require a lot more than four years to learn, but you learn it on the job. You know, there's hardly anything that requires four years of classwork. I'm not sure there's any occupation that requires four years of classwork to get to be good in. Residential, and here's where we start to get the options coming in. Why residential? We now have the internet. We have access to all kinds of other ways of getting education. What's the point of having at Harvard, the famous professors at Harvard, never ever, wow, that's too extreme. They always have a few tokens. They hardly ever teach individual small groups of students. They teach big lecture courses. And they're not lecture courses with long Q and A's at the end of them. They're just lectures and at the end of 40 minutes, the guy's out the door. So put those on the internet. Make them available to hundreds of thousands or millions of kids, you know. We can already get really good lectures from really top lecturers on all sorts of uh, private sector companies that produce that kind of thing. 
We also see places like MIT and other elite universities starting to say they're going to put lectures on the internet. You have all sorts of ways in which you can have face-to-face -face interaction with students uh, halfway across the country. I've done it myself. I've done uh, seminars with students at St. Olaf's College in Minnesota, where I'm sitting in a studio in Washington, and I'm here to tell you the sense of the interaction you were having with those students feels just the same to me as it feels when I'm in the same room with them. So you have the, the combination of a thing called the, the BA with its four-year residential college, really expensive, with a degraded quality of education, a meaningless piece of paper, competing with all sorts of alternative ways in which you can get that kind of education. That's what I call a market situation in which the BA cannot survive in its present form. Yeah, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, all of those which are the elite schools, they could jack up their tuitions to 250 grand tomorrow and they'd still have people lined up to get their kids in there, but because of the prestige and so the supposed networking value of getting degrees in those places. But for most universities, they are going to have to reform or die. Kind of reform that will come about incrementally is certifications instead of the BA. So that if you want to go into business and you take a year and a half of marketing courses and business management courses and accounting courses and you've learned what you want to learn and you have a good certification test, doesn't have to be multiple choice, there could be a variety of ways of demonstrating mastery of the material. That's a recognized credential that you take to an employer and an employer can say, yeah, this person knows a certain amount about marketing and accounting and so forth. And this is a credential. That kind of thing already exists for something like uh, the CPA exam. There are lots of other certification exams. All of those are increasing. I think one of the only remaining steps that we have to take is to discredit the BA in the public mind. As long as it has this halo that it no longer warrants, we are going to have a lot of parents and a lot of kids suckered into trying to get one who shouldn't. We are going to have lots more kids who are punished for not getting one. And if we value what has been one of the most wonderful things about this country, the sense that we are all one class in the most fundamental sense of human dignity and the, our life on this earth, if we want to restore that, one of the most important things we can do is to get rid of the artificial class distinction that our higher education has brought to us. Gene Healy's new ebook, False Idol, Barack Obama and the Continuing Cult of the Presidency, argues that the frustration of many Americans over the Obama administration stems from a warped view of the presidency itself. False Idol follows up on Healy's acclaimed The Cult of the Presidency and examines both the Obama administration and our continuing fixation on the fable of being led, comforted, and delivered by a presidential savior. Get your copy now at Cato.org or at the Amazon Kindle store. That's all for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.